This is the Relevant Life Church podcast, where we are about connecting with God, relating to people, and reaching our world. Tune in as our church goes through this week's teaching in God's Word. God bless you. You may be seated. Welcome to Relevant Life Church. Uh, It's good to see new faces, good to see faces we haven't seen for a bit. Welcome online. I want to say Happy Mother's Day. Everyone say Happy Mother's Day. Oh, that's a little bit weak. I hope you shouted a little bit louder than that. Come on. Happy Mother's Day. There you go. My mom heard you in Montana. She's hearing you online. She's going to watch today. So, Mom, Happy Mother's Day. I have the best mom. Well, actually, my kids have the best mom, I should say. So, there you go. Uh, but uh, thank you, moms, for being what you are. Thank you for doing what you're doing. I, I have the privilege and the honor today to introduce someone very special in my life. And I went through all of these ways of doing so, trying to figure out what's the way that I can most embarrass her. Um, so I have a slide presentation. No, I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> she's sweating down here. Uh, uh, I'm going to do it this way. Everyone give me an A. Everyone give me an L. Everyone give me an I. What's it spell? Hey, you guys are really smart. Uh, uh, I seriously, no, I, I was going through all these different things, and I want to say it was, I may have the year off here a tad. I'm getting her all flustered before she gets up here, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, she's really good under pressure. Uh, I was, I want to say it was 2009, 2010, 10, 2010. Uh, we had, uh, a troop of girls come into our church from one of our local colleges and Allie was one of those and she stood out amongst them. Uh, shortly after she arrived, she said, I want to plug in and I want to get involved. And if you know Allie at this point, she has her finger probably in almost every area of Relevant Life Church. Uh, she's an amazing leader. She is an amazing communicator. Um, I need to clarify, she is my daughter, but she's my daughter by marriage. Someone came and said, you know, that sounds a little bit weird because we know that Trenton's your, da- your son. Trenton's your daughter, too. No, <laughs> that Trenton's your son. How does that work? I can just tell you right now, my rule in my family, I hate the word in-law, right? I don't do in-laws, and I kind of think the daughter in love is kind of weird. So I'd rather just say she's my daughter. Can everyone just accept that? So get over it if you think it's weird. I love her like a daughter. If I could have picked you, if I could have, that would have been really, I was just saying, if I could have birthed you, but that would be really weird. Thank God that we're online right now, and everyone's hearing me blunder. Uh, I rehearsed it in my head, okay? Uh, But that came out wrong, okay? (laughs) Hey, I'm getting all the jitters out for you, all right? Anyway, would you welcome my daughter, Allie. Hey, RLC. Happy Mother's Day to all of the women in the room. I know some of you are not moms, but that is okay because I am not either, and I still get called mom. So um, I just want to take a moment. Can we put our hands together for all the women online and with us today? You know, life would not be the same without each of you, and I know that Mother's Day can bring up a lot of emotions, um, a lot of past hurt or baggage, or a lot of joy and excitement. And you know, you might not have a mom, she might have passed away. You might have a mom, and your relationship with her is, there's a lot of tension. You might have an incredible mom, and the Anderson boys are like, my mom rocks, and she does, I love her. And you know, there's just so many emotions. You might want to be a mom, and it hasn't happened yet. 
And what I want to say to you today is I hope that regardless of your situation, you will be willing to reach out to the women who have invested in you throughout your life because they are worth it and they're like a figurative mom or they're your actual mom and you need to reach out to them anyway. So with that said, I have two incredible women in the room with me today. So I'm going to take a moment because I have the microphone to honor them. So my grandma is here. She came from Gresham. She's right there. And I just want to say... Happy Mother's Day. Honestly, if you would not have been obedient to God, I would not be standing here today. And I'm super thankful for everything you've done for me. So not trying to already start crying. Whoa, emotions of Mother's Day, right? And second, um, my mother-in-law, Pastor Rhonda, you guys love her. You know her. She's walked a lot of life with you. Um, I just want to say happy Mother's Day. Thank you for raising the man of my dreams and for just always investing and praying in me. And in so many ways, you brought so much healing and wholeness to what a mom is in my life. And I thank you for that. So also, I want to thank PK, not because he's a mom, even though some weird things happened just a few minutes ago, but just for the opportunity to be up here. I'm so honored to get to join you today. You know, I'm, I'm really excited, but I'm mostly just kind of like really nervous. Like when Pastor Larry, he came and spoke a few weeks ago to us and he was like holding onto the table and shaking. I'm like, oh my gosh, my hands are falling off because I'm sweating. Like that's how I feel right now for you. You know, the people that I preach or teach to are all under the age of 18. Most of them are four and they just want candy. So, um... <laughs> I don't have candy for you today, but um, I think we are going to have some fun. And what I'm choosing to do today is to walk out the, the thing that God has called me to. And so I'm going to step into his presence and not the pressure of being up here. So let me ask you a question. By show of hands, how many of you would say that your life right now is exactly how you planned it when you were a teenager? Exactly. Exactly. Some of the teens might be, well, like, I mean, yeah, it's like I am right now because I'm a teenager. And so, you know, that's fine because I was the same way. And I can say for sure that with all of you, my life is not how I planned it. Because when I was a teenager, this was my dream, okay? I was convinced I was going to marry a Jonas brother. (laughs) And I didn't care which one. Like, I didn't really want to marry Kevin. But, like, I was like, Joe and Nick, come on, I'm ready. Like, I am ready to get married to you. And so that was one of them. And then my second dream was that I was going to be a lawyer. And I can say to you right now that neither of those happened. Um, the Jonas Brothers are all married and not to me. Um, if I have my own Jonas Brother, like the fourth or fifth member, right? So, you know, um, and I'm not a lawyer. I'm an accountant. So sim- similar, similar fields both require business law. But um, it's... Obviously, sorry. Um, I can say that neither of those happens, but that's kind of the norm, right? You know, we can look back at our broken dreams, and this one is really funny to laugh at, but I know that's not always the case. And then the reality of broken dreams are incredibly difficult to navigate. You know, by the time we reach our 30s, most of us have had a broken dream. Perhaps we long to be married and we're still single. Maybe our artistic career never took off. Maybe a crushing diagnosis has shattered the dreams of your loved ones. Or maybe a whirlwind romance has ended in divorce. You know, the details of our broken dreams may differ, but they do share a lot of commonalities. There's sadness. There's a sense of unfairness. Even jealousy towards those who have what we want. And life feels meaningless. And, you know, we may battle feelings of failure. And we may even harbor anger towards others because of our own unfortunate situation. 
And a pastor friend of ours said this. He said, we begin life as astronauts looking to the stars, dreaming of endless possibilities. And too many times we end up as archaeologists digging through the past, thinking, what if? And the reality of life's experiences beats our dreams out of us, and it causes us to just focus on surviving. And how we respond in the trial has everything to do with how we view God. Because you see, if the battle you're facing today feels too big, it belongs to the Lord. And you've been carrying a weight you weren't meant to carry, and you've been exhausting yourself fighting a battle that isn't even yours. But when you trust God with your situation, when you let him into your fight, he can lift the weight that you're carrying, and he will win the battle. And we must shift our focus from the one who is against us to the one who reigns above us. And when we can do that, and when you're willing to change your focus, God will win your fight. So you see, God takes what the enemy meant for evil, and he flips the intention of the enemy and uses it for his purpose through your life. And today I want to look at a story of a man in the Bible whose journey is the perfect example of how we see God taking what was meant to bring harm and use it to produce purpose. The book of Genesis has quite a few stories in it. Adam, Noah, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But no one gets more time than Joseph. And so that's who I want to talk about today. And his story begins in Genesis 37 when he is 17 years old. And Joseph was the most loved son of his father, Jacob. And we all know about his coat of many colors that you learned about in Sunday school. And that was a gift from his father that none of his other brothers got. And in verse 4, we see this. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. And they could not speak a kind word to him. And when Joseph reported having dreams of his brothers and even the stars and the moon bowing down before him, their jealousy grew into action. And the brothers actually sold him into slavery to a traveling caravan of Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt and sold him to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And so in this story, we see that the brothers in verse 31, then they got Joseph's robe, they slaughtered a goat, they dipped it in the blood, they took it to their father, and they said, Father, look at this robe. We think it's Joseph's. And Jacob looks at it and, said, and assumes that his son was eaten by an animal and is now dead. So his Jacob, he then mourns for a long time. And meanwhile, Joseph is in Egypt with Potiphar. And in Egypt, the Lord's presence with Joseph enables him to actually find favor with Potiphar. And we see in chapter 39, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in his house of the Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in the eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. So despite being betrayed by his brothers and ending up a slave in a foreign country, God was with Joseph. And God was using what was meant for evil for his purpose through what Joseph was experiencing. And while God is working behind the scenes, evil comes and it rears its ugly head once again, and this time in the form of a woman. And not just any woman, but Potiphar's wife. And we see in chapter 39, verse 6, we learn that Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, Potiphar's wife came and asked him to sleep with her. And in verse 9, we see his response. And he says, no one in, is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she continued to speak to Joseph day after day, he refused to be with her. But listen, this woman is a piece of work because not only has she been rejected like multiple times, she finally one day snatches Joseph by his cloak 
and demands that he come to bed with her. And this is his response in verse 12. Homeboy bolted out the door and runs out of the house. I mean, he went so fast, his cloak was left behind. And when I read this part of the story, I kind of picture it in like live action, you know, like in those scary movies when the people in the movies make like the worst decisions possible and just like end up putting themselves in more danger. Like this is one of those moments. I'm like, Joseph, this woman is cray. Don't leave your cloak behind. Like that's literally what I'm picturing in my mind. And so in verse 16, she kept his cloak beside her until her master came home. So creepy. Like, I just don't even understand. And then she told this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and he ran out. And Potiphar was so angry when he heard this that he threw Joseph into prison. So still in chapter 39, picking up at verse 20, Joseph's master, he took him to, takes him to prison. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. And he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden so that the warden put Joseph in charge of all of those held in prison. And he was made responsible for the, all that was done there. And the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in everything that he did. So here we are again, God taking what was meant for evil and flipping the intention of it to use it for his purpose through what Joseph was experiencing. So... Picking up in chapter 40, we see that sometime later, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was really angry with two of his officials, his cupbearer and his chief baker, and he ends up putting them in the same prison where Joseph is being held. And like, does anyone ever read this part of the story and wonder like what these two men, like what they would have done to offend Pharaoh? Like maybe the cupbearer has to like pour at a certain 90 degree angle at all times or like off with his head. And the baker, like he probably just put raisins in Joseph or in Pharaoh's cookies and they were not bussing. I'm like, I just can't even with this. I would put someone in prison for putting raisins in my cookies because they just don't belong there. But either way, after they had been in custody for some time, these two officials have dreams. And in the morning when they wake up, they look really troubled. And Joseph asks them to tell him his dreams because God can interpret it and give the interpretation to Joseph for them. So the cupbearer tells his dream first. And in verse 12, we see this is what it means. Joseph said to him, three branches, three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift your head and restore to your position and will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, Remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. So when the chief baker saw that the cupbearer had a favorable interpretation, he's like, oh, I'm next. So he tells Joseph his dream, and this one's not so good. You know, in verse 18, it says, this is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole. And the birds will eat your flesh away. Like those raisins did him dirty. I'm saying, I'm telling you, like that is what is happening. But here we go. Um, Pharaoh did do those things. He restored the position of the cupbearer and he ended up killing the chief baker. And in verse 23, we see the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot about him. So in chapter 41, when two full years had passed, Joseph is still in prison. Pharaoh has two dreams that no one could interpret. And in verse 9, we see that the cupbearer remembers Joseph and tells Pharaoh about him. So in verse 14, Pharaoh sends for Joseph. Joseph gets ready, and he comes really fast. And Pharaoh says, I've heard it of you that you can interpret dreams. And this is Joseph's response. He says, I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer that he desires. So Pharaoh relays his dream to Joseph, and this is what it means. 
in verse 29. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows, it will be so severe. And now let Pharaoh look for discerning and wise men and put him in charge of the land. So Joseph then proceeds to give Pharaoh a plan of how he should store up food in the seven years of plenty so that there is food in the seven years of famine. And the plan sounds good to Pharaoh and all of his officials agree. So in verse 38, you see Pharaoh ask, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? And he looks at Joseph and he says this in verse 39, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And in verse 36, we see that Joseph was 30 years old when he entered to the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 13 years. I mean, it took 13 years to get from Genesis 37 to Genesis 41. Joseph was sold into the age of slavery at 17, wrongfully accused and imprisoned, forgotten about. And then finally, when he's 30, he gets put into a position of power. And I have this saying, like, I'm 30, I'm going to be 30 this year, and I'm all about the 30 flirty and thriving. Like, that's a thing. So in November, when I'm 30, it's, I'm just, I'm declaring it over my life. And so in this moment, I'm, like, declaring this for Joseph. Like, he's 30 flirty and thriving. Like, maybe not as much, like, flirty, but we do know that he is handsome and, and good looking. And so, you know, had Joseph not been put into prison, he never would have been in contact with the cupbearer, which then would have positioned him to come before Pharaoh to interpret his dreams. God takes what the enemy meant for evil, and he flips the intention of it, the slavery, the imprisonment, being forgotten about, and he uses it for his purpose through what Joseph is experiencing and Joseph even acknowledges this in chapter 41, verse 52, when he names his secondborn son, Ephraim, he says, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So seven years of plenty, and Joseph is absolutely crushing it in his second role, or in his second command role, however you want to say that, of Egypt. So much so that when the famine finally comes, we see in verse 57, all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. Alrighty, we're getting close, you guys. Chapter 42. Enter Joseph's family. The shortage of, shortage of food in Canaan forces Jacob to send his sons to buy grains from the Egyptians. But Benjamin, his, Joseph's younger brother, is left behind and remains home with Jacob because Jacob is fearful of losing him like he lost Joseph. So in verse 6, we see this. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. And he said, where do you come from? He asked, from the land of Canaan, they replied to buy food. And although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered the dreams he had about them. So to quickly summarize the rest of chapter 42 through 44, Joseph is now 39 years old and he accuses his brothers of being spies and he tells them they must return with Benjamin in order to buy grain. So the ongoing famine forces Jacob to reluctantly send his sons back to Egypt with Benjamin and they are unexpectedly invited to dine at Joseph's house. Joseph then tests the character of his brothers by placing a silver cup in the sack of Benjamin and falsely accusing him of theft. And when Judah, one of the older brothers, offers to stay in the place of Benjamin, Joseph knows his character has changed and he reveals himself to his brother, brothers. And this is what he says in chapter 45, verse 4. He says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. 
For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant of earth to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of Egypt. Now hurry back to my father, tell him what I've done, and come quick, do not delay. So finally, in chapter 46, after 22 years, Joseph is reunited with his father. And when he sees him, he throws his arm around him and he weeps. And it's like a big family reunion. And at the end of chapter 49, the beginning of 50, we see the death of Jacob. And when Joseph's brothers finally or see that their father is dead, this is what happens. Verse 15. What if Joseph holds, a, they're saying this, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So skipping down to verse 18, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt with all of his father's family and he lived 110 years old. God took what the enemy meant for evil and he flipped the intention of it for his purpose through Joseph's life. So I just want to give a huge shout out and thank you for coming to my crash course in the life of Joseph. Everyone will receive a certificate on your way out. But there are three things that I want us to take from this story. Number one, if God gives the dream, he will fulfill it. In the book of Genesis, when you have a dream, it means that God is trying to tell you something. So Joseph has two dreams. And in the first one, he and his brothers are out in a field and they're bundling these sheaves of grain. And the one that represents Joseph stands upright and the rest representing his brothers bow down to him. And if that wasn't enough, God then sends a second dream. And in this dream, you see that the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars are bowing down to him. So obviously, for some reason, God was trying to show this to Joseph. And maybe it was to show him that he would be in a position of leadership someday. But this is an extremely unlikely dream. Because in that culture, and in pretty much any ancient culture, they followed the law of primogeniture which actually means the younger always bows to the older. So the older brother always rules over the younger brother. So think about what God was doing here. God was giving Joseph a dream that was completely counterculture at that time. Now, before we go any further, let me tell you what this doesn't mean and what this does mean for us. Here's what it does not mean. It doesn't mean that whatever dream you have for your future, it comes from God and God will fulfill it. You know why? Because so often the dreams we have are self-centered dreams. They come from our own fears and our own limited experiences. Because you see, picture a 14-year-old girl and she says, I'm going to marry Bobby. And she stares at Bobby all day in class. And when she gets home, she says to her mom, God is going to make this happen for me just like he did for Joseph in the Bible. Now, I'm sorry to say that's probably not going to happen. But here's what this does mean. God has a dream for your life and it might be very different from the dream you have. But it's a better dream. And he probably hasn't revealed much of it to you, but he knows it and he will fulfill it. Second Thessalonians 3, 3 says, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. So in the right time, pieces of your dream are revealed and become a reality. And it took 22 years for the dream God gave Joseph to become his reality. And some of you are bailing out after 22 days. Like, I don't even understand. 
And just like God used Joseph for his purposes, God wants to use you too. And at 17, Joseph didn't know what his dream meant for his life or how it would happen. The reality and harshness of his experiences actually made him forget about the dream that God originally gave him until we see in chapter 42, at 39 years old, his brother's coming to buy food from him and they bow down before Joseph and they don't recognize him. And at this point in verse nine, Joseph then remembers his dreams about them. You see, it's really not about you. It's about losing yourself and finding your dream in the bigger plan of God. Because God takes what the enemy meant for evil and he flips the intention of it to use it for his purpose through your life. If he gives the dream, he will fulfill it. Number two, God works through dysfunction and disaster. You know, when I read through Genesis 37, God is not mentioned anywhere in the chapter. And yet we can see that he is at work. And I want to point out two ways that we can see God's hand at work in this story. First of all, God works through dysfunction. Did you notice any dysfunction in the story? It's really important that we start with Jacob, the dad. And it's actually more important to take a minute to look at the history of Jacob. Jacob had a twin brother. His name was Esau. And from the time Jacob was a little kid, he knew that his father Isaac favored Esau. And even though Jacob knew that his mother loved him better, he desperately lacked the love and affirmation of his father. And that does something to a kid. So in Jacob's case, he grew up and got married. And even though he had more than one wife, the, the love of his life was Rachel. So when Rachel finally bore him a son, who do you think became Jacob's favorite? Rachel's firstborn, Joseph. And so... It says it in our story today that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of, her, of his other sons. And this is blatant favoritism of one child over the other. So dad had issues that he first learned in his family, and he's now brought those same issues, that dysfunction, into his household. And how about the brothers? I mean, I think they probably have a right to dislike Joseph somewhat because, you know, he's walking around knowing he's dad's favorite. He has the cool coat that, you know, we all wanted in Sunday school. Um, but three times in the first eight verses, it says they hated Joseph. And then they treated him with incredible violence because did you notice in verse 25, after they stripped him and, and had thrown him in a pit, did you see what they did? They sat down to eat. Like that's like almost sociopathic in the way that they just inflicted violence on someone and then went and got lunch. So again, we see dysfunction. But look at Jacob. He was jealous of his brother Esau that he tricked Esau into giving him his inheritance. So like father, like son. And you say, well, at least there's one hero in the story, Joseph. But I would say that Joseph doesn't look so hot here either. Because in verse 2, it says Joseph brought a bad report to his dad. And in the Hebrew wording, that usually means a false report. So it appears that Joseph was snitching or trying to create a problem where there wasn't a problem. And so he goes to, and then he also has the dreams of his brothers and his family bowing down to him. And instead of keeping those to himself, he blurts them out, which wasn't so wise because it just angered his brothers more. And he seemed to love going around in his robe that might as well have said daddy's favorite on the back. So Joseph, at best, is naive. And at worst, he's selfish and spoiled and probably arrogant. But the point is, tons of dysfunction. And here's the amazing thing. Through the dysfunction, God was up to something. Even though his name was never mentioned, he was at work. Now, that doesn't exonerate or excuse the bad behavior because the brothers can't go, well, God's going to use this for something, so I'm going to go beat up my brother. Like, they were not thinking that. But that doesn't mean that, God, that God's hand wasn't using it for his good. So when we, we, when we read, when we, 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 all of us we's, when we read the Bible— you know, our tendency is to look for heroes to imitate. 
So we say, okay, I need to be like Joseph. And you know what the problem is? Every human character in the Bible is flawed. They're all messed up. And yes, the life that Joseph lived and the choices he made to honor God were actually pretty incredible. But the main purpose of the Bible is not to give you good moral examples to follow. The main purpose of the Bible is to show how God's grace breaks in and saves us and uses us despite how messed up we are. So God's hidden hand is at work through dysfunction, but also God works through disaster. And I want to look a little more closely at the assault. The brothers see Joseph approaching and their hatred is so fierce and they're in this remote place, so they plot to kill him. Look at verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The Hebrew word for strip is the same word that's used for skinning an animal. So there's actually violence to it. And when it says they threw him in the cistern, it's not just the generic word for throwing something. It's a word that's used for dumping a dead body into a grave. And anytime it's used on a live body, it means they're abandoning them for dead. So much later in Genesis 42, when the brothers are retelling the story, we actually find out that Joseph screamed and cried out in pain. He cried out to his brothers for mercy. So here's the point. This was a personal disaster. This was abuse. This was assault. This was evil. Some of you sit here this morning and you carry deep wounds from the things that have, done, that have been done to you. Some of them from your family. And you could probably tell what happened in vividness like it was yesterday. And for some of you, you just can't talk about it because it's too painful. And one of the things that Joseph's life, life teaches us is that life is full of unfairness and inequities and tragedies. It's just messed up. But bigger than that, it teaches us that there's a God who's not absent in those things because he doesn't cause evil, but he does allow it and he steers it and he uses it for his purposes. And think about this. If this hadn't happened to Joseph, if he never would have been in the position to, he never would have been in the position to save his, his family and a nation of people. But did Joseph know that when he was screaming out in the pit? No, and I find it really interesting that this actually happens in a place called Dothan, or Dothan, I don't know. There's one other time in the Bible that Dothan is mentioned, and it's in 2 Kings, and it's about the prophet Elisha. And most Bible commentators, they point this out. It says, Elisha and his men were in Dothan, which by this time was a city surrounded by hills, and they were about to be destroyed. And Elisha cried out to God from the pit. And do you know how God responded to his cry? God sent chariots of fire, and the enemy was defeated. And you read a story like that, and you say, that's kind of, like, that's the kind of God I like. I mean, I want to be able to pray. That's how it should work. And God should, and I should be able to cry out to God, and he's just going to come kick some butt on my behalf. <laughs> but why did, why did God answer Elisha when he cried out, and not Jesus, Joseph, Jesus, Ooh, Joseph? <laughs> because Elisha just needed a simple military victory. What Joseph needed was much more complex. He actually needed this to happen in order for the dream that God gave him to become his reality. And here's the thing, though. God was just as faithful to Joseph in his silence as he was to Elisha in his action. And the question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that God is caring for you when he immediately answers your prayers just like he wanted and when he doesn't? Because why did God answer the prayers of the early church when Peter was thrown into prison and then suddenly he comes knocking on the door and he's free? But when John the Baptist was thrown into prison earlier and the people prayed for him, he got his head cut off. Do you believe that, the God, that, God, do you believe that God cared for John the Baptist just as much as he cared for Peter? Because here's the point. If you believe that, it will change your faith. 
It will make you a person who desires more the face of God than the blessings of God. It'll give you patience and maturity and compassion for people who suffer. It'll make you the person who can honestly pray, not my will, but yours be done. So number three, God's purpose is always bigger than our problem. When your life is not going how you planned, you will be able to handle it because you know that God has a purpose for you. And even if you have no idea what it is, God knows and he's working it out through your life. And we know this because it was true in Joseph's life when the dreams God gave Joseph were so upside down, but God still slowly and surely fulfills those dreams. So as we have gone through Joseph's life, I hope that you'll see that God was with Joseph in the mess of his life so we can trust that he's in the mess of our lives. Joseph recognized that God's purpose was way bigger than any problem he faced because he said in Genesis 50, 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So in light of Mother's Day, I want to tell you a story. And it's a story of a little girl who is now grown. And she was born to a single mom, the result of a one-night stand. And her mother struggled with addiction her entire life and still does to this day. And as a small child, she went back and forth between living with her grandparents and living with her mom. And her grandparents would keep her on the weekends so that she can go to church with them. And as she recalls her childhood, she remembers the hopelessness of what it felt when she had to go back to live with her mom every Sunday night, not knowing what each day would hold after that. What would they eat? How drunk would she get tonight? Another guy? I wonder if he'll hurt me this time, she thought. Her grandparents' house was her safe place, and she vividly recalls the memory of when she asked Jesus into her heart. And she was sitting on the porch with her grandma, and they sang a song together, and they prayed a prayer. And it was in that moment that God told her that he was with her, she was not alone, and that he had a plan for her life, a plan far beyond what any six-year-old brain could comprehend. And at the age of eight, her mom dropped her off at her grandparents' house for the weekend. And when Sunday night came and it was time to get picked up, her mom never showed. And she remembers looking out the window every day to see if this would be the day her mom finally came back for her. And after some time had passed, she eventually stopped looking and accepted the fact that this was now her home and her mom no longer wanted her. But you know, her grandparents, they took incredible care of her. They loved her as if she was their own daughter. They provided for her, they educated her, and they never stopped praying for her. And it was from them that she learned to put Jesus first. Moving forward several years to the age of 12, it's the middle of the night and she wakes up to the sound of her mother's voice. Clearly intoxicated, her mother was yelling profanities at her grandparents and was threatening to take her from them. And she remembers feeling prompted to get to a safe place. So she ran to the bathroom before her mom could grab her and she locked the door. And she cried out to God saying, why is this happening? And he said to her, I am with you. You are not alone. And I have a plan for your life. So throughout middle school and high school, always feeling like, feeling like she had something to prove, she pushed herself to be successful. She got, to, she got used to her mom's over-promise and under-deliver routine, and she focused her energy and time elsewhere. She did well in school. She played tennis. She faithfully served in her church. And at the age of 17, she was declared legally homeless through the state of Oregon, and all the emotions and feelings of rejection came flooding back. Her parents didn't have legal custody and neither of her biological parents were claiming her. So she needed this declaration so that she could apply for college as an independent since it was impossible to provide the necessary parental information. And as she was feeling embarrassed and unwanted, a voice whispered in her ear, I am with you, you are not alone, and I have a plan for your life. 
And in 2010, she went off to college and she found herself the most amazing church family. And fast forward 11 years, it's 2021, and the girl in the story is standing before you today. Because the girl in the story is me. And you know, I never thought that I'd be living the life that I live, and I never thought that God would use me in this way for the purpose that he's fulfilling in my life, married to the man that I am, getting to experience what I am. But I know that God worked through the dysfunction and the disaster of my life, and his purpose has always remained bigger than my problems. So you see, looking back at my life, God was always there, and he was weaving together the broken pieces of my reality for his purposes. And so the alley that stands before you today, the alley that most of you have known for 11 years, comes from dysfunction and disaster. And I present myself as poised and put together, and sometimes I know I come across like I don't have any emotion, and that's because when I show emotion, I'm letting you into my reality. And in my reality, I can get hurt, because that's my experience, that's my past. And so, you know, Trenton always makes a joke that we're in counseling because he's the one that's dysfunctional, or he's the one that, you know, has all the problems, but it takes two people. And I have just as much dysfunction and baggage that I'm bringing into our marriage. And you know, in my early 20s, I took the opportunity and I forgave my mom. Because I realized as I look back at my story, it's not that she didn't want me. It was that she humbled herself enough to say, I can't take care of you, but I know your grandparents can. And it was in that moment when I realized that that's what she was doing, that I forgave her. But how many of us know that just because we forgive doesn't mean that we take time to heal? Because I'm like a stuffer. I'm like, oh, emotions, like psych, feel out the door, right? Like, I don't want to deal with them. My husband, he's like a processor and like, he's so in tune with his emotions and he's so self-aware. And I'm like, like what's happening? And so what I did in my early 20s when I forgave has been such an incredible healing process. But what I've had to deal with now in my older 20s, almost 30, is the fact that I actually didn't heal. I just stuffed down what hurt me or the habits I've created out of my dysfunction that are impacting my life now. And I don't have it all together. And it's not perfect. And I actually realized that I hadn't healed when I brought someone else into the picture. And so in that, I even remember when I was 28 and I was picking out my wedding dress, my mom didn't show. And I never thought I'd be so hurt by that because my whole life she's never shown. And I remember that I was crying and, but you know who was there? My grandma. And you know who else was there? Rhonda. And I remember thinking this is a tangible way of God saying you're not alone. And he's given me a husband who's willing to walk through my story and my reality with me and heal with me as I process all of this. And I don't have it perfect. And some days are harder than others. But I can stand before you and say that God takes what the enemy meant for evil and he flips the intention of the enemy and he uses it for his purpose through your life. And you know, I've given a lot of thought and prayer to how I wanted to end our time together. And this is where I've actually settled. So you need to let Joseph's life point you beyond Joseph to someone greater. And I want you to think about this because in so many ways, Jesus is the greater Joseph. And Joseph was rejected by his own people, right? So was Jesus. Joseph was sold for a handful of silver, right? So was Jesus. And they stripped Joseph of his clothes and they abandoned him to die. They did the same to Jesus. And in his agony, Joseph cried out for help. And so did Jesus. And Joseph's life actually points us forward to Jesus. But here's the big difference. All of what happened to Joseph was against his will. Jesus came voluntarily. And Jesus wasn't just stripped of the robe that represented his father's love. He was actually stripped of his father's love. Because as he hung on the cross, he was being punished for my sins and for yours. And if he did that for you, you know what that means? 
you can know for a fact that the living resurrected Jesus is with you and he has a dream for you and he will fulfill it. He will do it through your dysfunction and disaster and his plan is bigger than your problem. And you can believe him when he says, I am with you always at the very end of the age. And you can believe him when he says, nothing can snatch you out of my hand. And you can believe him when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So when your life spins off the map and you're in a pit, you don't need answers from God, so stop looking. You need to know and trust in your heart that he is there. And because of what he did on the cross, you can confidently declare that he is with you. And so church, I just wanna pray over you and in our time together. So God, I thank you so much for just how incredible you are, God. I thank you for how you take what the enemy meant for evil and you use it for your purpose and for your good. And that is a story that I want to be a part of. So God, I pray over the hearts of all our people, God, all of, all of them who are in the house and who are online, God, I pray that you would be with them. I pray that you would let this transform their faith, God, and you would meet them in their circumstance and you would remind them that they are not alone, that you are with them and you are going to use them for a purpose that is far beyond any problem they are facing, they have faced, they're going to face and anything of the sort, God. And so I just pray healing and wholeness and purpose over your people today as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. So I just wanna say happy Mother's Day. Go out and honor your moms, honor the women who've invested in your life. Don't forget the outflow registration open today. So you wanna hop on all the different platforms there are and get signed up for a project. And we will see you in the weeks to come. Here at Relevant Life Church, it's our mission to see people connect with God relate to one another, and reach our world. This single statement drives everything we do as a church. Our hope is that today you were encouraged in this. Thank you for joining us and have a blessed day.